0: <clears throat> so, glad, again, glad you're here this morning on a, on, a, on a day that many of us would like to just soon stay in bed, um, and it started out pretty eventful for me. I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but our power went out this morning, and uh, so I told several people already, I'm thankful I showered last night, and I know that you are thankful I showered last night as well. Amen. Um, but getting this, getting this face ready in the morning is difficult in the dark, I'm just going to say. And so, uh, but I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. And as we continue in our uh, Advent series, I'm, I just I just trust that the Lord was, he, he intends to work and use his word to just uh, bless us. And so uh, we are, as I said, in Advent. Uh, we, we do this every year. We pause whatever we're doing to stop and Celebrate Advent, and so this year we, we put Luke on hold, and and uh, for a, sometimes we do the traditional four weeks with the with the same traditional themes, and sometimes we kind of do our own uh, non-traditional Advent. This is a non-traditional year; we're only doing it for three weeks, and we're we're walking through three Psalms that focus on that really that really hone in on the theme of joy. Uh, so often, I mean, we, we don't. We don't realize how much this desire for joy for happiness in our lives motivates us but but we come to this Christmas season and, and even at large in, in the culture at large, we recognize this to be a, a time to celebrate and a time to set aside to put the, the the busyness of life or well, we get busier so it's not putting the busyness of putting other busyness on hold so we can celebrate Christmas. so we think of it in these terms we think of it in terms of celebration and, and joy but my desire in this season, in this year, as we focus on these three Psalms, is not just to give you a reason to celebrate today or up until December 25th. My hope is, as we see the, the, the fullness of God's desire for our joy, the fullness of God's desire for our happiness, that we will be filled with joy every day from here on out till Jesus comes. And truly, as we talked about last week, that that is. That's the foundation. I mean, here's the reality. Our great, glorious, good, gracious God did not leave us to ourselves. He didn't didn't leave us in the midst of our rebellion, but rather on his own cognition, or of his own desire, and by his own decree, he, he instituted, he instigated a rebellion of his own, a rebellion against our own rebellion. And in his coming, by sending his son, who had been prophesied in the scripture, who was announced by angels, who was born of a virgin, and, and who lived a perfect life, and died a sacrificial death, and rose victoriously in his coming. Oh, there's many reasons to be joyous. But in, even in the majestic beauty of his first advent, if that were all there were, just—I mean, if that were all there were, if 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 all the joyous, most joyous events of all of history had come and gone, and 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 what what we should have experienced, we can't experience. We can only remember. What joy would that give us? See, I, I think and my, my my contention through this series, through this Advent series, focusing on joy, my my I, I contend with you that that the reality is is that. Many of us are, are, are losing out on all the joy that we can know in Christ because we are simply remembering that he came and forgetting that he is coming. See, that's why we celebrate Advent. Because in remembering, we remember that he has done this work with great and joyous anticipation that the work isn't finished, that this is not all there is. Oh, there is so much more to come so much more to look forward to. And so every year we, we, we stuff our schedules just a little bit more full so that we can celebrate this season. My hope is you'll come out of this season with reason to celebrate and experiencing great joy every day next year, no matter what circumstances hold, no matter what situations you find yourself in because you know the God who came and the God who's coming. And so we started, we're, we're focusing on that in three psalms. We're looking at that in three different perspectives from three different psalms. Psalm 96, 97, and 98. Last week was Psalm 96. This week we're in Psalm 97. I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Um, we'll read the whole psalm. And in this, we will, we will find not only the picture of a holy God, but the picture of a holy God who desires a holy people to be very happy. So, we'll begin reading verse 1. Read all the way through verse 12. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth... The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. To be happy is a basic human desire. We, we all long for it. I've pointed out in a no, number of sermons and a number of different times that, that suffering is a common thread that connects all of humanity and has for all of time. I mean, that's why on um, all of these reality TV shows, like every contestant on every reality TV show must, ha- I think it's a prerequisite that you got to have a sob story that's going to tear jerk people as they watch the show. Like that's going to draw them in. We're, we're connected to that. We're we're to that drawn in by that because there's commonality even if it's different suffering or if if it's even less difficult than our own or seemingly less difficult than our own it still draws us in it gives us a connection because there's this thread of suffering that 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 ties us all together the whole tapestry of human history has this thread of suffering that runs through but as much as, as that thread of suffering runs through the tapestry of human history so does the the thread of our desire for joy is a basic human desire. Every person from every age has longed to be happy. And this is not just me saying this. I mean, certainly I, th- I think I am smart enough to figure that out, but but I'm not standing on my own here. Randy Alcorn in his book Happiness makes the point, and, and, and he even makes the point, he goes so far to say is it's not something we choose. This innately part of our design that because we all long for what we lost when our first parents fell from grace or fell from God's glory and, and were sent out of his presence and kicked out of the garden, that, that we all long for that place where we live in the garden, where we experience the presence of God without some distance between us. And you can, you can go read the book. It's about uh, 450 Pages, 200,000 words written on happiness and and, and the importance of it and the role it plays in God's providence and plan. I'd encourage you to. But he's not the only one that says these things. Augustine, this this has been the perspective of the church and the understanding of theologians for some time. Augustine, back in the late 300s to 400s, wrote this. Every man... Whatsoever his condition desires to be happy, whether he's rich or poor, whether he's a uh, 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 slave or Greek, or, or, or whether he's, whether he's um, no matter his race, creed, or, or, or ethnicity, every man, wh- whatsoever his condition, lost or saved, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with earnestness that he prefers to all other things. Whoever in fact desires other things desires them for this end alone. So if, if it's not happiness that you desire, his point is if it's not happiness that you desire, the things you desire are so that you can be happy. It's kind of like money. So, so I don't have a love for money. I have a love for the things that money can give me, right? Right? That's the the difference. That's a different perspective. And so maybe it's not happiness that you think you're pursuing, but whatever you're pursuing, it's Augustine's perspective that you are pursuing it so that you would be happy. Then, 1600s, just a few years later, Blaise Pascal noticed this same trait in all people. He writes this in his his thoughts, is what it's called. Uh, It's just literally, that's the title, thoughts. It's a bunch of Uh, thoughts that he had jotted down and after his death was assembled into a book and so uh, he wrote this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And that struck me as I read that. In fact, I I even said something last night to Amy. I was like, man, just think on this thought. That in the midst of the the deepest of depression that you feel, the only way out is to take your own life. Is a desire to escape the unhappiness that you feel. A bit more recently, J.C. Ryle writes in his late 1800s, he points out, all men naturally hunger and thirst after happiness. Just as the sick man longs for health and the prisoner of war for liberty, just as the parched traveler in hot countries longs to see the cooling fountain or the ice-bound polar voyager, the sun rising above the horizon, just in the same way does poor mortal man long to be happy. Every one of us, intrinsically, every one of us longs to be happy, to fill joy, to be filled with joy. But for all this desire, if this truly is marking all of mankind, if this has always been our pursuit, for all this desire for happiness, what do we have to show for it? Do you think history is going to look back on our generations and our days in these first two decades of, of this 21st century? Do you think history is going to look back and think that was a happy time? I want to get back to that time. Like my parents remember the golden years, you know, like the, the golden days, the, 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 oh, what do they call it? It's, I don't know, golden oldies, you know. They, there's a, an idea that somehow we've lost something, and, and, and if we could just get back to that. I'm thinking. I'm of the mind that probably the people who follow us will not be seeking to stand in our place, unless it just keeps getting worse. Jeffrey Kluger wrote in Time Magazine. He wrote an article uh, called "The Pursuit of the, the Happiness of Pursuit," and and in it he makes a, a uh, a point about the, that we all desire happiness and, and that happiness is available to us if we, if we just know the right way to get it. But he makes this point in, in his article that I think fits this question, answers this question well. Since 1972, only about one-third of Americans have, des- have uh, described themselves as very happy. According to surveys funded by the National Science Foundation, just since 2004, the share of Americans who identify themselves as optimists has plummeted from 79% to 50%. According to a new time poll, that was according to a new time poll. Meanwhile, more than 20% of us will suffer from a mood disorder at some point in our lives and more than 30% from an anxiety disorder. By the time we're 18 years old, 11% of us have been diagnosed with depression. The gap between our optimistic expectations and the reality that a significant portion of the population is, of late, cranky and dissatisfied, may be what has spawned the vast happiness industry. We tap that industry in a lot of ways with with pills. pills. Uh, This time poll found that 25% of American women and 5% of American men say they are taking an antidepressant. With food. 48% 48% of women and 44% of men admit to eating to improve their mood. You know, like the whole idea my boyfriend broke up with me, so go get me a gallon of ice cream because that's going to make me feel better. Self improvement products and services, including books, audiobooks, and seminars, self improvement is a $10 billion a year industry. About the same as Hollywood. So if it's not seeking to improve ourselves, we're paying for our entertainment to make us happy. With borrowed wisdom, there are 5,000 motivational speakers in the U.S. earning a collective $1 billion per year. The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness, once an ideal, has become a big business, but not an especially effective one. You see, I, I think that our, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great great grandchildren are gonna look back and think those were not happy days. Unless God forbid it gets even worse. It doesn't take not take much to look beyond ourselves, to look out at the at the circumstances and situations surrounding us and find that the selfies and the Facebook posts that we are posting are not actually what we're feeling. We like to paint these pretty pictures. But by and large, our culture is not happy. While I don't agree with his final analysis or how he determines that we can find happiness, I think these statistics speak for themselves. That we're not happy. But what if I told you, resting in the midst of this psalm that declares, that depicts a holy God and his due, that settled right into the, into the, to the makeup of this Psalm 97. What if, I, what if I told you that not only is it your desire to be happy, but that it's God's desire for you to be happy? God is holy, and God is joyous and sufficiently happy of himself. But he desires his people to be holy and he desires his people to be happy. But somehow I think we miss that. In the midst of living this Christian life and striving after Christian ritual, in many cases I think we miss the fact that he longs for you to be filled with joy. A joy that cannot be contained but must be expressed in rejoicing. Our desire, this is the main point I'm going to press the rest of the day. Our desire for joy will only ever be satisfied under the sovereign rule of our eternal, almighty, glorious God. Yes, we remember Christmas. But in remembering Christmas, we think about the day that Jesus comes to get us, to bring us to be with this God. And I think we see it bookended, both ends of this psalm. We see it, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. And then he closes, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Our God is not some cosmic killjoy that has instituted commandments and rules and boundaries within which we are called to live, expected to live, simply because he wants us to not be happy. And while I don't think anybody in this room would probably say that they believe that he's a cosmic killjoy or that he is in some way against them being happy, our lives of willful rejection against the commands he has given us and the willful rejection of living in the design in which he created within us says that we think there's a better way to be happy. There is no other way there is only one way to know this joy and it is to be submissive submitted under the sovereign rule of our eternal almighty glorious god on the contrary to to this to this Thought that seemingly directs us to live, however we desire, on the contrary, is he is the creator and designer. He knows intrinsically how each component was intended to fit. He knows the purpose of each and every element. This is true to, uh, on the grand scale of stars and galaxies in the expanse of the universe, all the way down to the infinitesimal scale of atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons. And it's written into the very pieces of our DNA. Rather than being the damper of joy, his sovereignty is reason to rejoice. And the psalmist sees it, and the psalmist understands it, and he calls us to it. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. It's under his sovereignty that the earth is able to experience joy. It's under his authority that the the world is able to express joy and happiness. It's under his rule and his reign that that the peoples, and not just some of the peoples, but all the peoples have an opportunity for happiness. As much as you desire joy, as primary as the pursuit of happiness is in our lives, in, in our lives, As much as it is in us, it is God's desire for our joy. And as primary as it is to the pursuit, his pursuit of our happiness. You might think, oh, you're making that too much about us. You're diminishing God and you're putting us in the first place and He's, he's pursuing our happiness. Why? Why else did he come to save us? Yes, for his glory. Absolutely for his glory but yes, for our good. You see, he desires our holiness and he desires our happiness because in our holiness and in our happiness, he is glorified and we enjoy the best things of his creation, the best good he has to offer. This psalm is, is an expression, definitely an expression of his power and his sovereignty. It 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 it, it's a it's a demonstration of the bigness and the majesty of God. It shows us that He is righteous and just in a world defined by injustice. I mean, we, we can recognize injustice. At a, at a moment's notice, we can see that, that, that there's something off, that there's pieces missing. In a world that is easily able to see the injustice of oppression and, and the injustice of, of, people, uh, of people taking advantage of others, the injustice of, of, of people hurting others. He is just. All he does is good and right and he is the standard that sets it all in place and we know his justice and we don't have to fear his justice because Christ has come if you remember back in Luke Luke chapter 4 verse 18 through 19 J- Jesus was just stepping out into his public ministry and he he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it in the synagogue and he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So yes, remember that Christ has come. And yes, remember that in, in his coming, he came to proclaim the gospel to the, to the poor, to, to free the oppressed and the, and the downtrodden, to take care of people who were broken. But it's in Christ that God's justice is able to be enjoyed. Because this just and righteous God, and you see the contrast, and it's almost, almost like these two conflicting ideas. In the midst of his justice and righteousness, It's judgment for those who are against him. but something much different for those who are with him. Those who rejoice. Those who, who are glad because of his justice. They understand it. They're able to see it in Christ. They're able to enjoy it. Apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, there is no such thing as justice. We can't work it on our, on, on our own. We can't, we can't bring it to pass by ourselves. No matter how hard we work at it, we see the injustice in the world and it causes us serious heartache. I mean, there's an outrage in our culture. Every day, you turn on the news and you can be angry about something, some other tragic event. We will never arrive at justice Apart from God sending His Son to provide us justice. Let me say that a different way. We will arrive at justice, but we won't enjoy that justice. See, God is still just. But in Christ, we don't get just His justice, we also get His mercy. Apart from the gospel, there is no way for us to enjoy his justice. Jesus not only highlights the problem, he not only sees the problem, not not not, not, not only can define the problem, but he provides the solution. And so, yes, we remember he came. But if he just bought us a few minutes in a day, just a few years in a life, if all we have to celebrate is what he did and not what is to come. Man, isn't that sad to think that we can't really enjoy the thing that should be enjoyed. If you take his second coming away, if you take his, his new life away, if you take everything that is to come away, all we have is what he did with no hope for the future. So in this Christmas season, let me encourage you to see the righteousness and justice of God in a Savior who came, a Savior who's coming. Again, it depicts this, this big and majestic and powerful God. It demonstrates his power. He is almighty. The pictures presented in this song are, are mountains melting, melting like wax. I was just talking to some visitors last week about how they're from Colorado, and now because I've been in the Rockies, I, I, I had been in mountains before, but never in the, in, in, in the Rockies. And when I went into Colorado and went to, we ended up at a conference in Vail, and it was a beautiful, gorgeous place, but I had no idea what mountains really were until I was there. I mean, I've been in Tennessee, I've been in the Smokies, and, and man, they, they look like hills in comparison. We boast the Ozark Mountains, but come on. <laughs> That's nothing. But man, to stand and look at mountains that are miles and miles away and still feel so small. And they melt before him as if they're a candle burning under a flame. This is power. But again, we need to remember, we've got to remember, we've got to celebrate, and and we've got to experience joy because we see this so clearly in the life of Christ. His power made so prevalent, made so noticeable, water to wine. I mean, he changed the molecular structure. You realize that wine doesn't come from water. It doesn't start as water. Water. He had to change the molecular structure. He had to twist the atoms around so that, so that wine became grape juice that then went through a fermentation process in that much time. Blind people saw, lame people walked, deaf people heard. And as much as we can do, as, as powerful as we might think we are, as far as our advances go in, in, in in medicine, we still can't do this. Not just like that. Not just at the, the command of our word. Not just at the, at the touch of a hand. Well, we've made some advances. But we're nowhere close to the power of a God who walks up and says, you get up and walk. And people who had never walked. Whose muscles were atrophied. Who had no idea how to balance We're able to stand up and walk. Not only is he powerful over all of these things, he's powerful over every demon. The most powerful enemy has no chance in front of him. Demons are cast out, and not only are they cast out, they demonstrate great fear in front of him. Resurrection from the dead. He told the dead to rise, and he then died, and three days later rose again. you know anybody that can do that? I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody that can do that, except maybe one person. His name is Jesus. And yes, I remember that he came, and I remember that he did those things, and it fills me with joy to think of the promise that he provided in it, the majesty and the beauty of the, of the gospel work that transpired in his crucifixion and his resurrection. But that we get to be partakers of that for eternity in the day that he returns to take us to be with him? (laughs) Oh, what joy. What joy will be ours, this pursuit of happiness, this pursuing the, the, the knowledge, the certainty of his return. And we, again, we see the bigness and majesty of our God in this psalm. His glory is evident for all people to see. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory, it says in verse 6. This means that nobody can, can, nobody can miss it. It's undeniable. It's, it's a matter of fact. It's not something that this guy's speaking of with opinion. It's the reality of all things, is that his glory is seen everywhere. He has not hid himself once. And it's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The rejection of God—it's a willful rejection. His glory is evident; his glories are are clear. He, they, they can be clearly perceived in what has been made. Yeah, so we think back. Not only is it seen in what has been made, but we see Him in Christ. When Jesus says, "And, and, and Jesus says to His followers that." If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. His glory is made known. Standing on top of the mountain, his glory is revealed as the, 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 the Shekinah or the glory of God shines through him. In the, in, in, the, um, in the, what's it called? Somebody help me. Trans, no. Transfiguration, thank you. I was trying to say transubstantiation. That's not right. In the transfiguration. Listen, if we are going to find our pursuit of joy fruitful, it is going to be because we have found our God majestic and powerful and eternal and beautiful. But even in doing that, and even in seeing Christ for who he is, brothers and sisters, why why are we not a people marked with just radiant joy? Why is it that the church is marked just as heavily with unhappiness? And I think in the midst of these words, not only do we see the big and majestic God presented and portrayed, but I think we find some obstacles to our pursuit of joy, some, some reasons Real, not, not excuses, real reasons that we can work against, that we can strive to, to work against in order that we might set those obstacles aside. The first is unrepentance. We can come at this from a couple of different perspectives. The, the Lord reigns, and, and so unrepentance, you might, you might think of this as just a decision not to recognize His sovereignty To determine that you are sovereign, that you are free to make your own plans, to, to do it your way. And the saddest thing I think I've ever experienced, the most mournful moment in all my life, was sitting at a funeral in which they had that song sung, I did it my way. Yeah, I did it my way. No recognition of God in his glory No recognition of God in his eternality. No recognition of God in his power. This person faced the end of days doing it their way. What a sad state that is. Unrepentance, we might see that as in a willful rejection or disobedience of God's commands. He reigns. He calls us to live in a certain way. He gives us commands. He gives judgments. He calls us on how to live. But in pursuit of happiness, we think that some sinful action is going to make us happy. It's our, 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 our churches are riddled with it. It's, 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 it's a fact that as many people that are sleeping around in the world around us, as many people who have shucked off the, 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 the confines of, of marital intimacy for, for intercourse, for, for, for having sex with one another, for, for as many people as having sex together outside of the church, the same statistic holds true inside of the church. That in this very room, there are people who have determined that, that sex is going to make them feel happy and make them feel fulfilled in some way. And rather than get it the way God has shown us, we can have it. We pursue it in extramarital affairs and pornography. And I, why even wait till we get married? Let's just shack up. In a pursuit of power, thinking that if we get to be the ones to tell people what to do, if we get to be the ones to exercise power over people, that we will be happy. It's silly. It may sound stupid as I say it, but just hang with me. In the movie Spider-Man, he's told, with great power comes great responsibility. And the truth is, if you start wielding power, you really do have responsibility. And if you mistreat people with your power, don't assume that's going to make you happy. Responsibility is a weight that we bear. And I'm going to tell you, apart from Christ... And the hope that he's promised and the power that he's exercised, that responsibility, is a burden that crushes, not a a source of joy. Sin, no matter how tempting it might appear, will never bring happiness. If God has said, don't do it, it's not because he's trying to keep you from something. Because he wants you to enjoy the best of his goodness that he has available. One final perspective on unrepentance is, is, is just the, 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 the idea that sin, in this pattern of sin, we, 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 we should see that, we, we, we should understand that it doesn't just, it's not just something we do, it's not something we just take lightly, it's not some, oh, well, this is just a, no, no sin. When we sin, we're actually opposing God. I think one of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture is right here in this psalm. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. There's there's no adversaries left. There's no one left standing. There's no room to be his opponent. But yet when we sin, we're certainly not walking with him as our ally. Brothers and sisters, we preach for a holy life. We call people to live in holiness, and we long for your holiness, not because we, we think some legalistic thing that, that now, you, oh, if, you're, if you act a certain way, God will love you. No, God loved you. That's why the cross exists. That's why the second advent is there for us to look forward to. His love is for you. His desire for holiness, and our call to holiness is that you might enjoy him, not just be ruled by Him. So we are serious here about that. We take pains, and we struggle with it. Don't, don't think we don't struggle with it. There's circumstances even now that we struggle with. But unrepentance, unrepentance will keep you from experiencing the fullness of God's joy no hate for evil. He says, love the Lord. You, you who love the Lord hate evil. There are a lot of things today in our culture that, that, that we can hold with, with, without having some binary perspective. For example, back on our gospel and racial reconciliation weekend, I, I, I told you that just because someone says black lives matter doesn't automatically infer that they don't believe that blue lives matter. We we aren't trapped. Our minds are broader than that. We're able to think beyond that in such a way that, that, that just because we think one thing doesn't automatically mean we think the other thing. We don't have to make everything a binary choice. But just because everything's not a binary choice doesn't mean that some things aren't a binary choice. You cannot love God at the same time of loving evil. If you love evil, you hate God. If you hate evil, that's where you're able to love God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. To love God is to hate evil. And so the question, when Richard Sibs Sims answers for it, how do I know? Like, like if, if this is keeping me from experiencing the joy that, that I long for, the joy that I want to know, how do I know? If I'm really hating evil, and he gave us six, six things he wrote. He says first, number one, if our hatred of sin is universal, we know that we hate sin. Because you can't hate one sin and not hate another sin. You must hate sin. Adultery is to be hated in the same way that murder is to be hated. It's the same way that stealing is to be hated. If our hatred of sin is fixed, we know that we hate sin. There should be no appeasing of sin, but rather an abolishing of the thing hated. It means we're not giving room for it. It means that we're not making concessions for it, that we're doing everything we can to put it to death in our lives. Third, if our hatred of sin is more a more rooted affection than anger, He says, he qualifies this, he says, anger may be appeased, but hatred remains and opposes the hated object. So you commit a sin. Let's let's just use this as an an example. You look at at pornography and and you lust after the people in those pictures. And you get up and you walk away and you're angry. Uh, Anger will fade. We hate that sin. We hate we, we hate it. We hate it because it's evil. We hate it because we love God. If we hate sin wherever it is found, we must hate sin. He, he qualifies this one. We must hate sin in others, but especially in ourselves. He that hates a toad would hate it most in his own bosom. Many, like Judah, are severe in censuring others, but partial to themselves. You, You know what I'm talking about here is the person who looks at everybody else and can see the sin in everybody else's life. But when they look at themselves, pretty lenient. Wherever it's found, even in your own heart, especially in your own heart, we hate sin. We know we hate sin if we hate the greatest sin in the greatest measure. That is, if we hate all sins in just proportion, not being offended by the slight flaw in another while overlooking a much greater offense in ourselves. And finally, number six, he says, if we can be reproved for sin and not get angry, we know we hate sin. The struggle that we face every time we go to confront someone in their sin is will they get angry, will they reject me, will they dislike me? The truth is that's a sin in and of itself, that we're more concerned for ourselves than not for our brothers. But can you be reproved, can you be confronted in your sin and not grow angry because you long for people to point it out so that you can put it to death? Because you hate sin. We hate sin. We, we are called to hate sin so that we can love God. We, we hate sin because of what it, what it says about who God is, about who, what we believe about God. It, it, it speaks to our view of him. We hate sin because it removes it, it, his majesty. It removes his sovereignty. It undoes his glory in our hearts and in our minds. It's not a reality. He is always going to be majestic. He is always going to be eternal. He is always going to be worthy of worship and praise. But in our hearts and minds, sin does something that removes that from us. It enables, it doesn't enable, it keeps us from seeing it is what I'm trying to say. We hate sin because of what it says about what we believe about God. We hate sin because of what it does to us and what it does to others. Sin is destructive. It is divisive. And so we are called to hate it because we are no longer those things in Christ. And so long as we don't hate sin, so, uh, for, for the same measure that we will not hate sin, we will not experience his joy. And third, I think we see the thing that keeps us from experiencing this joy, the joy offered to us by this eternal, glorious, powerful God, is idolatry. Worshipping some other lesser God giving ourselves in devotion and adoration to a worthless idol, as it's said here. Verse seven, all worshipers of images are put to shame. That's not joy. That's not happiness. So what are your idols? Well, granted, we don't live in a culture that bows down before statues. Most of you don't have... have, have, uh, places in your house that you'll go to and burn incense before a statue of Buddha or statues of ancestors that, that you believe represent your spiritual ancestors who are watching out for you. Most of us are not making sacrifices and praying to to spirits as if they, they have some power. Most of the people in this room not worshiping statues. But the reality is is that we we still struggle with idols. We're so given to self-worship that our idols are most evident in our motives and our desires and our emotions. Tim Keller does a great job of pointing these things out and helping us to see them and define them. And we use one of his worksheets in our discipleship. And the, the worksheet starts off in, in identifying our heart idols or those, those idols, those things that we're devoted to, those things that we worship by recognizing our problem emotions. And he starts by asking three questions. He says, if you are angry, ask. Is there something too important to me, something I am telling myself I have to have? Is that why I am angry? Because I am being blocked from having what I think is necessity when it is not. The second question he asks, the second problem emotion he highlights, are you fearful or badly worried? I ask, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Is that why I'm so scared? Because something is being threatened, which I think is a necessity, when it is not. The third question he asks, if you are despondent or hating yourself, is there something too important to me? Something I am telling myself I have to have? Is that why I am so down? Because I have lost or failed at something which I think is a necessity? When it is not. See we have it in our minds that we don't just want joy. We have it in our minds that we deserve joy. I'm going to say this as gently and as graciously as I can. You don't. You don't deserve anything from this eternal And glorious and gracious God. You don't deserve joy from him. You don't deserve gifts from him. You don't deserve knowing him. You don't deserve light from him. You don't deserve anything from him except justice. And that justice, apart from Jesus Christ, is not going to be very enjoyable. But because he is these things, he's determined not just to call for our holiness, but to also provide for our happiness. You see, this is not a, a dichotomy. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be all about holiness and forgetting happiness. We should not be all about happiness and forgetting holiness. This is, there, there's a div- division drawn in these things in the church that needs to be set aside. God desires both your holiness and your happiness and in the coming of Christ and in the return of Christ he has provided for both so that you can be holy so that you can be made distinct so that you can be made pure so that you can be made a hater of evil and a lover of God so that you can be one of these people these the, the, one of these people that speaks about when he says Zion hears and is glad the daughters of Judah rejoice <laughs> For you, O oh Lord, are most high over all the earth. O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of the saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the, for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. You see, he makes us holy so that we can be happy. He doesn't say, "Ah, oh, you got to be holy and then I'll give you happiness. They come together to be holy in Christ, is to be happy in Christ. And so the pursuit of happiness... The pursuit of happiness, pursuing this joy that we all long for, is found in the very pursuit of holiness that God commands for us. You want to be happy and strive to live holy. Live and be the person God has made you to be in Christ and who is made certain in the first coming and will provide the fulfillment of the culmination of in his return. Our desire for joy will only ever be satisfied under the sovereign rule of our eternal, almighty, glorious God. When we have been made holy, when we live holy, man, he will make us happy. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am grateful. because I see in my own life a pursuit of happiness, a desire for happiness apart from you, and, and I know that that will not work. I'm grateful that you give me any hope of it. I pray, Father, that you would work in the midst of this, that you would do what only you can do, provide in ways that only you can provide, confront us in ways that you can only confront. I pray, Father, that in my in my ineptitude, in my inability to describe the beauty of your glory, the vastness of your eternal nature, in my inability to demonstrate and and depict and speak about the the awesomeness of your power, your spirit would open our eyes to it that we might be able to see it. We might be able to turn from our sin, repenting. We might be able to not just turn from it as if it's some nonchalant thing, that we, we turn from it in hatred of it, that we might love you and that we might tear down idols that rule in our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.